Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. This week on Indie Cider, we sold four times as many units on the Wii U as we sold on Steam. On Steam, our visibility window expired in a day. That was Ben Shawstack, lead developer on High Strangeness, a game that was released on Steam for Mac and PC and the Wii U this past May. This is a game that I saw at Boston Fig, the annual festival of indie games back in 2013, and immediately likened to The Secret of Evermore, a Super Nintendo game that was the unofficial sequel to Secret of Mana. If you've played either of those games, you have a pretty good idea for the gameplay mechanics of High Strangeness. It's a top-down action-adventure game where the battles take place in real time. There are some light RPG elements, such as conserving your attacks, because each one depletes your mana bar, which is separate from your health bar, and also every enemy you defeat gives you gold that you can use to upgrade your weapons, armor, and abilities. The music is primarily a chiptune soundtrack that is in the style of 8-bit games and often using 8-bit computers and devices to create the soundtrack. Those are your primary instruments. And the graphics are both 8-bit and 16-bit, and that is High Strangeness's unique selling point. This adventure game takes place in two worlds, and very soon on in the game, your character gains the ability to move between those worlds. Normally, it looks like a Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis era game, but with the push of a button, you are shifted into an 8-bit world, though if you ask me, it looks more like Atari 2600 than 8-bit Nintendo. Each world has slightly different mechanics and a slightly different view on the world. So, for example, a passageway that is impassable in the 16-bit world might be passable in 8-bit. And so you have to use this gameplay mechanic to shift between worlds, solve puzzles, and make your way through mountains, caverns, dungeons, and more environments. I haven't gotten too far into the game just yet, but it certainly is reminiscent of the games I grew up with, as I mentioned, Secret of Mana and Secret of Evermore. And so, being early on in the game, I have not yet encountered a lot of opportunities to use its main mechanic of switching between worlds. I've heard some people say that the world you reside in most of the time is more a matter of personal preference. Do you prefer 8-bit versus 16-bit graphics? But there are times when you are required to switch between them to complete the experience. High Strangeness has the unique honor of being the first game to have ever been successfully funded on Kickstarter. Its crowdfunding campaign ran for three months from May to August of 2009 and successfully raised just over the $1,500 they were asking from 36 backers for an average contribution of $43. At that time, the game was predicted to come out in 2010 for the Xbox 360. It finally did come out in 2015, May of. So I'm going to be speaking with Ben Shostak about the early experience of crowdfunding and whether or not he would do so again today, the development process and how the team collaborated on it over that period of time, and exhibiting the game at events such as Boston Fig, where I first encountered it. You can find links to everything that Ben and I discuss at IndieCider.net, or you can hear the interview paired with gameplay that I've recorded off my Wii U on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash gamebits. You can also go to indiesider.net slash YouTube for a list of all the IndieCider episodes to date. This is number 27. If you like the show, feel free to leave a comment on YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel, or if you're listening to the audio edition, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Those reviews actually do improve our search engine optimization, our SEO, and help other people find the show which could be great whether you're a gamer looking for new indie games or a developer looking for some of the best practices from others in the industry. Whatever your motivation, I hope you enjoyed this week's interview. Here it is. 
Today I'm speaking with Mr. Ben Shawstack, the owner and lead developer of Barnyard Intelligence Games, developers of High Strangeness. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you today? Doing pretty well. Thank you for sending me the review code for High Strangeness. I've enjoyed playing it on the Wii U. I hope that uh, you've gotten a lot of feedback like that since it came out. Yeah, yeah. the reception has been uh, really positive from uh, all the folks who have checked it out. And um, yeah, it's, it's great to get it out there after all that time developing it. I can imagine. I want to talk to you a lot about the development process and the, the gestation period. But before I get to that, I want to talk to you about some of your inspirations for the game. Because just as I'm playing it, when I first saw it at Boston Fig a few years ago, the game that I most likened it to was Secret of Evermore. Because, you know, at, at least at the very beginning, you have a pet cat, whereas Secret of Evermore, you have a pet dog. And you're running around the sort of top down view, and it's real time action. And you're whisked away to this fantasy adventure. And I, I'm, but I've seen other interviews with you where you mentioned a lot of other games that inspired you, and that wasn't necessarily one of them. So can you talk to me about what your inspirations were for uh, the game's world, the mechanics, any aspect of it? Sure. Yeah, a lot of it just uh, derives from uh, the basically the two generations that we're using in the game, which are the uh, NES and uh, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis eras. And the NES is pretty specific to the original Legend of Zelda. That was the origin of the action-adventure, uh, action-RPG game, as um, as we kind of see in the 16-bit era with, um, like you said, Secret of Evermore, um, you know, Star Tropics, Chrono Trigger, Link to the Past. All Like, those are a lot of the different games that we, we were inspired by. And um, we kind of, uh, part of the concept of using them both together and switching between the worlds is the, uh, you know, the concept of a multidimensional existence and uh, the uh, different dimensions. And that all kind of factors into the, uh, the mystery of the game. And um, the designer of the game, Steve Jenkins, he came up with the concept partially as a, Kind of like a, a, a melding of all the different things that you know he was inspired by with um, with the, the different era of action RPGs and um, uh, chiptune music, which is um, uh, kind of this kind of uh, developed out of um, some discussions with Rich Freeland, Disaster Piece. Steve was was talking with him, and uh, this was actually around the time when the uh, when we started our Kickstarter. Rich was uh, doing a, uh, a Kickstarter for uh, one of his albums, and uh, this was back when Kickstarter was in beta, so it was, it was a closed system, and um, we were the first um, game to actually uh, successfully complete a Kickstarter campaign. So uh, basically, we, uh, Steve started up the Kickstarter, and um, you know, we, we all got together, and we didn't really know what what to do with it. We had a, let's see, we brought in like 1500 bucks, something like that, which is peanuts compared to what a, um, uh, Kickstarter campaign is these days. All of that, um, the, uh, technical aspect of having a game that, uh, switches you between these two generations and also, um, has the, the chiptune soundtrack to it. It's kind of a, like a modern, uh, take on uh, classic uh, genres and hardware. 
Yeah, I've seen other games where there are two takes on a single world. Usually it takes the form of a light world and a dark world, or even in Paper Mario, it's different dimensions. But I've never actually seen it done the way you're doing it, which is 8-bit and 16-bit. Are you aware of any precedence for what you've done here? I have seen others. Uh, there's other games out there like, like Evo Land where you kind of transition over the course of the game between those periods. But uh, I think ours was kind of the first I, that I know of that um, actually switches between them on the fly. And when you do that, it changes the entire mechanics of the game. So when you're in the 8-bit world, you are moving in four directions and you have a uh, basic attack um, and it um, also affects all of your enemies around you. So uh, you're really able to kind of switch between uh, two different almost sets of hardware when you're, you're tackling your challenges. I'm curious about the constraints you impose on yourself when creating the 8-bit version of High Strangeness's world. For example, Shovel Knight, I believe they actually took the NES color palette and constrained themselves to that. They said everything we draw in this new game we're making has to be drawn from this palette. What did you decide to use to define your interpretation of 8-bit? How did you decide what qualifies as 8-bit in high strangeness? Yeah, the the, uh, the main constraints that we had um, that we, we imposed were in the 8-bit world, we mostly stick to the NES color palette and the um, in the 16-bit world um, we're, we're kind of we hang around the amount of colors that a Super Nintendo would use but we don't stick to that specific palette and we also allow transparency in that world whereas in the um, 8-bit world uh, whenever there is going to be transparency we instead we use like kind of dithering where it's every other pixel so we have that like conveyed in the um, in the menu and like the the HUD. So it's it's kind of constantly there on the screen in your HUD. You can see that transition as you switch between one to the other world. And the uh, other aspect, um, we kind of originally we um, we had it set in the um, um, I believe five by four is the uh, NES and uh, Super Nintendo ratio for resolution uh, and we um, we have it set original console resolutions so when you switch between 8 and 16 it actually it will double the pixels or or have the pixels the tool by which the main character switches between these two worlds is a crystal skull and when I see that I can't help but think of Indiana Jones 4 which for many people is not a favorable comparison <laughs> were, were you concerned that that might happen yeah that it's funny because that happened like in the middle of developing the game. Uh, that the game that the um, movie was released, and for a second we we thought that you know the the whole concept was doomed. But when Dana Aykroyd came out with his Crystal Skull vodka, and uh, you know that was considered cool and not bogged down by this, and also uh, Fifty Cent Blood in the Sand had a Crystal Skull. It, there was more cultural relevance to it than that specific movie. But it was kind of it was amusing to us. It was kind of an inside joke. Uh, we were making, you know, Shia LaBeouf jokes about the game, like putting him in as a character. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> One of the more obvious references and more intentional that I picked up on, in the first five minutes of the game, I picked up on two Earthbound references. I take it you guys are fans. Yes. I mean, but then who isn't, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm so excited to see that Nintendo released 
Earthbound Zero for the Virtual Console and Earthbound before that, I can't help but think that they're leading us up to finally releasing Mother 3. Maybe. We'll have to see. <laughs> so you mentioned some of the other collaborators you had on this project, uh, Steve Jenkins and some of, some of the others. You have quite the team of collaborators for this project. Uh, some indie games like Axiom Verge are done by just a single individual, but you had quite a few people pitching in on this game. How did you collaborate among so many people? I mean, do you have a studio that you all work in together? Uh, no, we're all completely remote. Um, uh, like our, our main team, uh, you know, my, myself, Steve, uh, Sam Bennett. Sam did the, um, the watercolor illustrations, and uh, see, Steve did uh, most of the pixel art. We did uh, use some contractors to fill out the rest of the, um, the pixel artwork. Uh, but for the the programming, uh, that was that was myself doing the vast majority of it. We brought on uh, Chris Truitt. He's the developer of Master Spy, uh, which is um, uh, a like a hardcore two um, D uh, spy based game, which is it's really cool if you want to check it out. For the musical talent, that was that was all Steve. He's he runs the uh, Telefuture uh, record label, and uh, he has great relationships with a lot of um, uh, music artists. And um, uh, when we originally kickstarted the project, um, he uh, he got some music from Disasterpiece. And um, throughout the, the development of the game, we worked a lot with um, with Dino Leonetti from Cheap Dinosaurs to do um, uh, like the other part of our soundtrack. So we've got uh, we've got a great set of uh, music to the game, and uh, both of the soundtracks are, are actually out there to uh, pick up. Despite so many people pitching in on this game, I don't know if it's due to geography and bumping into you at Boston Fig, but even in the online interviews I see about this game, it almost seems like you've become the public face for High Strangeness. How did that happen? Are you the unofficial <laughs> marketing guru for the company? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a guru in marketing, but um, in general, um, it's something that uh, it's it's been a challenge to get the project together and complete because uh, all of us um, working on this in our uh, free time, this has been something we have to kind of like fight other priorities for to um, to get the game developed. And um, I'm just kind of taken on the role of uh, you know doing the public facing stuff. It's just something that I I learn as I go and uh, uh, getting out there. Uh, I meet just a lot of people uh, in the industry and in the field that, that inspire me to, to keep up, keep working on this and, um, you know, in, in doing more game development. But, um, but yeah, that, that kind of leads into like the, like the duration of the project working on it, like as a, as a passion project for all of us, it's been, it's been a challenge. Cause like, kind of like getting, getting halfway shown the game at MAGFest. So that was like, like probably a year and a half, maybe, two years into developing was the first time that we showed it to anybody. So that was when it, the project became uh, real to us as like an actual uh, product out there. And, um, you know, from then on, we, we were doing our uh, internal development and kind of working towards like, you know, milestone builds. But from there, um, you know, I kind of took the lead with uh, showing the game at, uh, at, Ma- at MAGFest at, uh, Packs and in Boston Fig, you know, part of that was building an audience, and the other part was, um, you know, looking for, you know, a publisher to help us. And um, uh, out of 
our first appearance at PAX East, uh, we heard back from uh, Midnight City. And, um, you know, this was when they were first launching their brand. So they, um, they reached out to us and, um, you know, we worked together to, um, well, they, they had, um, as, as part of, you know, what we needed to get the game completed, uh, we got an advance from them to, uh, to complete all the artwork for the game. So, like, from then on, it was like we actually had, a, like, a path to complete the game because we were able to do the, the art assets that, like, just internally we did not have the, the resources to do. So uh, that, that kind of enabled us to complete the game. And, like, from signing with Midnight City, it was about, you know, like two years from that that uh, uh, to release. And, uh, you know, part of that was uh, the, the challenges uh, Midnight City went through. So when the Kickstarter first ran in 2009, the projected ship date for the game was sometime in 2010. The game came out in 2015. Yep. It sounds like the delays were due to seeking a publisher and also just juggling all the other priorities that you as independent artists have. Yeah, and um, we didn't really have an idea of the um, the scope of the game uh, until we were really uh, into development and had an idea for uh, how much time it took to uh, create a piece of content and refine it. Yeah, a lot of it was just kind of out of our um, personal limitations and the scope of the game that we had uh, developed. And, um, you know, maybe we would have uh, scoped it differently if we, um, if we knew how long it would take to do things. But, um, but yeah, we, we were able to uh, get the game completed, so that's what matters. A quick point of clarification. I introduced you as the owner and lead developer of Barnyard Intelligence Games, and the game was yep. published by Midnight City. So who is Crystal Labs? Crystal Labs is uh, Steve Jenkins, um, like his, his alias for uh, game development and for, for his music work. We, we partnered together for uh, releasing the game, so it's, it's kind of, it's, it's like we share like the, the, the direction responsibilities for the game. Gotcha. You mentioned how you brought the game to MAGFest, Boston Fig, PAX East. What sort of reception did it get at these events, and did the game evolve in any way as a result of the feedback you received from these early testers? Yeah, we did receive a lot of great feedback. The most important thing, uh, and this was the first um, first event where we showed the game, we were really focused on telling the story of the game Playing it by ourselves, we would load up a debug build that was kind of queued up to the level we were going to play and test. And uh, we, so we started off our demo with like kind of a, a slow crawl with text on it because that was, for us, we logically thought that's, that's how you set up the story. So we had like, it was like almost a minute, like looking back, it was like an awful thing to put in there, but it was, it was a minute of crawling text with uh, with it, it was a detailed illustration, but it's not something what you sign up for when you want to sit down and like um, you know just jump into a um, a game and enjoy it. We just kind of learned to think more in uh, user experience and um, and uh, think about like you know just the story of uh, somebody playing the game versus the story of what we want the game to be. Right. It's it's one of those challenges that we face is how do you integrate player agency with narrative? Because 
they're both really important, but you don't you need to compromise somewhere along the line so that the player still has a sense of ownership in what the story is. Mm-hmm. So as you said, this is one of the first games to go on Kickstarter and the first game to be successfully funded on Kickstarter. And Kickstarter was, as you said, still in beta back then. Nowadays, when people think about crowdfunding, Kickstarter is sort of the default venue and there are alternatives people can explore, but they usually consider Kickstarter first. What made you consider Kickstarter when it wasn't even on the most people's radar back then? This was uh, an idea that Steve came up with because um, as um, from his um, uh, business doing like new wave and like different types of music releases, uh, he was, he was always looking at like different ways to uh, distribute things and different ways to, um, to, you know, start and sell projects. So um, it was something that I think the, uh, the part that appealed to him a lot was the um, like the physical media aspect. Uh, Cause like a lot of uh, what a uh, telefuture does is create, uh, limited release vinyls and um, uh, even uh, music on like uh, like Sega Genesis carts like they're they're on like custom boards you can put into a Genesis and play the music. So the like the with the physical media aspect, um, uh, we had uh, we had like some really high de- high quality uh, prints of the uh, artwork for the game as rewards and. Uh, um, you know, partial soundtracks and stuff like that, that, you know, we were able to uh, send like right after the uh, the campaign uh, before we were able to complete the game. Crowdfunding has changed a lot in the six years since you ran this campaign. I would say that, for example, you asked for what is nowadays a pretty trivial sum of a mere $1,500. I mean, that's only four figures compared to the six or seven that a Castlevania or a Shenmue can get. Now, there's been a lot of complaints, or concerns at least, that these high-profile Kickstarters from AAA studios, they may be bringing users to the platform, but they are encouraging a misperception about what it takes to actually fund a game. Do you think that High Strangeness would do better or worse in this uh, six years later if you were to go on Kickstarter? Um, I think it would be um, it would probably be a different um, it, it would definitely be a different campaign. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would kind of um, change the way we uh, we think about the game because there's completely different business models now with like with early access and things like that. It's not necessarily something that would uh, lend well to our project, but uh, I think if we were starting the project now, we, we probably would not take it on Kickstarter um, because uh, it, it just seems like the uh, the campaign process is um, is something that you should really only tackle if you have a an idea that will market very well and you have the capability to do that that marketing for it. And I think we're kind of the uh, more the, uh, the 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 quiet developers who will uh, you know focus on getting the game done and getting it out there. And that was, that was part of our focus with um, with using a publisher to help us get the game out. I've been a backer on Kickstarters that have taken longer than expected to complete, and my philosophy is it's done when it's done. Kickstarter is not a store. I did not submit a pre-order. I've seen comments, though, from other backers of those same projects that are quite antsy to get their product and are quite mean about it in times. Did you have any early backers who 
uh, were not supportive of what they may have perceived as delays in the game's development? No, it was actually since it was such a a small community at that point. The uh, the backers were always very um, they're they're very cool. They were they were interested in in the game development. They they would have probably appreciated more um, more updates and stuff like that. But um, in general, it was it was a completely different. Uh, mood when the um, uh, when the process started off. I think now you're seeing that people are looking for games as a service uh, more, and and they think that you know when they invest in something they're going to get like constant feedback, and that they're also buying ownership in the uh, um, in the game itself. So um, it's kind of a double edged sword because you're um, by signing on to do a Kickstarter, uh, you're opening yourself up. For more more transparency, and uh, people get people get angry if you're not transparent enough. And they also get angry if you are transparent and uh, you're not making the decisions that they want. So um, I think at this point, it's it's a good problem to have to have um, you know people that are uh, passionate and maybe angry about your product uh, versus people who haven't even heard of it. So I think that's kind of one way of looking at it. Yeah, Kickstarter is still doing its job of making impossible products come to life, but I think it's true that there's probably more a sense of entitlement among the backers than there was six years ago when they recognized that they were just taking a chance on something. So in the original Kickstarter, the game was suggested to be launching for Xbox at some point that moved to the Wii U, which for the last two years has been probably my favorite console, although I think I'm just now shifting to see the PS4 that way. But most people would agree that the Wii U commercially is the weaker of the next generation or current generation options. I know you also release on Steam for Mac and PC, but as far as consoles go, why would you choose the Wii U? Well, when we originally shopped the uh, the game out to uh, the different first parties, um, like the the Nintendo platform was just uh, it was the best fit for the game uh, in terms of like the um, the nostalgia of the game and and all the things that we we were referenced or inspired by, and uh, so that they. They latched, Nintendo latched onto the game, and they really liked it. Um, so that was kind of like just the, the logical decision to go uh, with them as the main uh, platform to publish on. And, uh, and and just financially, it made the most sense to focus on uh, the Wii U. Even though it, it might not get as much of a return as the other platforms, uh, it was just a good fit for that audience. And uh, being with, with myself being like the only... Programmer, we didn't really have the um, the resources available to do five different console launches at once. Does that mean that you'll see yourself porting this game to other consoles one at a time? Uh, yeah, we definitely want to um, uh, port the game to other consoles, and that's just something that you know we're we're, um, we're figuring out like the business side of that stuff, and yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get it onto you know Sony and, and Microsoft platforms, and maybe uh, onto. Uh, 3DS or something like that. Oh, that'd be excellent. So one last question before we wrap up. I'm wondering, the game has now been out for three months. I usually interview developers just as their game is coming out. You have had the opportunity instead for more of a longer view on the game's uh, release. What in the game's first three months on the market has surprised you, if anything? The one thing that really surprised me was, um, and, and all of us really, was 
just uh, the immense amount of titles that are on Steam now. Uh, and you mentioned how you know Nintendo Wii U is it's, it's the least it's it's you know the least adopted of the consoles this generation. But we sold four times as many units on the Wii U as we sold on Steam. We didn't really know how to approach it with Steam when we first launched on there. So I don't think we had like our best screenshots and and all that prepared on there. But we had kind of a we had like a light launch on Steam. And um, by the time this comes out, uh, we will be uh, on on sale on Steam. So we're we're um, anxiously waiting to see how how it sells on there. Is um, you know we don't know if like like our challenges with selling on there are um, price specific or it's just you know we didn't uh, catch on to the YouTuber uh, channel or, or something like that. It's really fascinating to me to hear that the Wii U version sold so many more units than the Steam version because I know this is anecdotal, but Zaboid Games, creators of Breath of Death and Cthulhu Saves the World, when I remember it. When they released their games on Xbox 360, they sold a certain number of units in the first year, and then they ported the games to Steam, and they sold just as many units in like the first three months. And they basically said, "We are never again doing a console-only release because it's not profitable for them." But it sounds like it really depends on what platforms you're looking at and exactly which audience your game is geared at. Yeah, and and like the, the key difference is uh, uh, how many other titles are there on, on the, the platform you're launching on because on the Wii U, we were, we were featured on there in, in the front page of their store for like well over a week. But on Steam, our uh, visibility window expired in a day. You had to search for a game after that point. Yeah, it's much easier to stand out when there are fewer people in the crowd. Yeah. Excellent. Wow, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that insight. Sure. So I've been speaking with Ben Shawstack of High Strangeness, available now for Mac and PC and Wii U. Ben, can you remind us where to find either you or any of the companies involved in this game online? Sure. Uh, you can uh, find more information about the game at highstrangenessgame.com. Uh, you can find myself on Twitter at Agent Moon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks a lot. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.